I want to encourage you to open your Bibles today to 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12. It's going to be up on the screen as well, but follow along with me. Before us today is a fairly simple passage to understand, but a rather difficult one to put into practice. You'll see what I mean as we get into it. But before we do, let me let's pray. Let's ask the Lord for help. Holy Spirit, we do ask that you would go before us that the words which you wrote would come alive to us today, Lord, that they would be more than just words on a page, but that they would cut us with the word of your spirit, that you would open our hearts to receive them with joy and that we might see Jesus Christ more and more. We pray this in his name. Amen. Starting in verse 8 through 12. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter starts out this portion with a phrase that sounds like he's a good pastor, right? Finally, in conclusion, in closing, and then he's going to go on for two more chapters, right? But he's concluding something. He's finishing his primary teaching on the principal duties that all Christians have, which he began back in 1.13. Peter moved from general instructions to specific cases back to general instructions. And because he says in 1.16, God is holy, now we are to be holy. Because Jesus ransomed us from our old life of sin, because we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good... We're now to put off malice and deceit. That's 1, 18 through 2, 3. Because of God's redemptive work in our lives, we are chosen people. We're a holy nation, a royal priesthood, living stones. And as such, we are to abstain from the passions of the flesh. That's 2, 4 through 12. This holiness manifests itself even in the way we respond to social structures and authority. We're to submit to the governing authorities, to 13 through 17. Servants are to submit to masters, both good and bad. That's 2, 18 through 25. And as we learned about last week, husbands and wives must live together in grace. That's 3, 1 through 7. And then why are we to do all that? Peter says, for the Lord's sake, because of what he's done, because we are mindful of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. And because Jesus has called us to a cross-shaped life, if we act like Christ has called us to act, Peter says we can ordinarily expect to live good lives and to enjoy God's favor. He asks right after this passage in 3.13, Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Meaning, it's possible to suffer harm for doing good, But even in the sinful world, there is common grace. It's not the norm to suffer for doing good. It's the norm to suffer for doing bad. 
God has given everyone some sort of measure of his common grace, of his understanding. We have the law. We have order. Therefore, evil is suppressed. Thank God. And good can be done and people can flourish and societies can function. That's the norm. A good life provides the environment in which peace should be able to thrive. The fifth commandment comes with a real promise of honoring your father and mother. It says that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. He's saying obedient Christians, dutiful Christians, God-honoring people should expect to see good, peaceful days. And so we're moving from how to relate to civil authorities, masters, unbelieving husbands and wives, to how do we relate to one another as believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And Peter's going to give us five Christian virtues that we are to follow. And if we follow these five Christian virtues, it'll help us in our goal to live in love and peace together. Now, whenever we see a list of virtues like this, do the, do the apostles just reach into a virtue hat, you know, and they pull out the first five that come to mind? Is that how it works? Well, we know that this is the inspired word of God, and that's not the case. And if you look at these five virtues, you'll see a pattern that emerges. The first and last are mental. The second and fourth are emotional. And the fifth is like glue that binds them all together. It's like the gooey Oreo center that holds them together. If we want to have a healthy relationship as believers with other people, with each other, we should strive to maintain these five principles. That's what Peter's saying. This is a life that is lived in response to God's grace. We have seen God's grace. We have tasted and seen it. We know about it. And now we are responding to his goodness. Looking at verse one. Finally, all of you. Who are the all? Well, that's us. Y'all folks, right? The people reading this letter. It's it's y'all Christians. All of you have unity of mind. That's the first virtue. Another translation would be, be harmonious. Live in harmony with one another. The easy illustration of that is built into the word itself, isn't it? When I was in high school, I was in a barbershop quartet for a short period of time. And if you know how that works, if, if all the boys are together, sounds great, right? If all the boys are picking their parts out and you're singing, oh, it's wonderful. But if even one person's off... In a barbershop quartet, it is horrible, absolutely horrendous. And the same is true with relationships in general. Some relationships require, I mean, strong relationships require some sort of harmony. If I'm piggybacking off of last week's sermon, think about husbands and wives. We're not to be unequally yoked. We should have some sort of unity of mind. When I do marriage counseling, I ask questions these days like, What is your political affiliation? Are you guys in agreement with that? Who's good with money and who's bad with money? And how do we both become good with it? What are your goals in life? What about kids? Where will you live? I'm asking about future dreams. What about your faith? Because I'm trying to snuff out problems that would emerge from disunity later on in life. Now, differences in taste in marriage are good, right? That, you know, opposites do attract. And so that can be a good thing. But essentials, harmony with each couple is 
perfect. You have to have that for a healthy relationship. You need to have unity of mind. Now, again, we apply that to the church. We are to be united in the essential doctrines of the faith. And when that happens, it's a beautiful thing to witness. When a church is united in goals and mind and in doctrine, it is, it is absolutely, it's firing on all, all cylinders. It's gorgeous. It's God-honoring. And we can have liberty in the non-essentials, but we must be united in the fundamentals of the faith. We have to have respect for one another. We have to have common vision. The Bible says we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Well, how can we have unity of mind, Peter? Peter, how can we have harmony in the church? In 1 Corinthians 2.16, Paul quotes from Isaiah 40, and he says, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? It's a rhetorical question. Nobody. Nobody can instruct the Lord. But then he adds, But we have the mind of Christ. And by that he means through the Holy Spirit, all believers have mystical union with Christ's mind. Okay, well, what does that mean? It means we share the same plan, the same purpose, the same perspective that Jesus had. We are united under the cross. It means we're able to understand God's plan in the world. We can see the events happening in history and we go, well, the Lord is working this out, isn't he? He has a purpose for things. We've been able to receive the gospel as good news through the Holy Spirit, opening our eyes and our ears and our minds. And so the mind of Christ stands in contrast to the wisdom of the world. Because it's wisdom sent to us by God. It's given to believers through the Spirit of God. And therefore it cannot be understood by those who do not have the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ gives believers discernment in spiritual matters. It's an understanding of God's redemptive plan from beginning to end. And those who have the mind of Christ are prayerful people. They await with eagerness and expectation when he's going to return. I mean, that's why we are so excited around Christmas time. We are celebrating the first Advent because we're excited about the second Advent. We are longing for Christ's return. This is also a mind that will look at other believers and will want to serve them with fervent love. Earlier in the book, Peter told us to gird up the loins of our minds. Remember, we talked about that girding up the loins of our minds. And soon he's going to tell us to be ready to give a defense using our minds for the hope that is within us. And so we want mind and heart in unity, working together. What does a disunified mind look like? Do you think Peter had any idea about that? What it looks like to be at war with yourself, with the vision of Christ. In Matthew 16, Peter rebukes Jesus. Jesus says, I have to suffer. And Peter says, nope, don't like that. Not going to happen. And then Jesus replies, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your, what? Mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so the like-mindedness that Peter requires of us, which he's commanding of us, is one that channels both the mind of Christ and the love of Christ. 
Jesus is always our example. He's not only our example, he's our strength to follow the example. And that could be discouraging to us since we know how disunified we often are. But we take solace in the fact that Jesus has prayed for us in this very matter. John 17, 20 through 21, Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You see, this is our calling. It's a calling to be unified, to have the mind of Christ. And if Christ has prayed for our unity, then we can be assured that it's not only possible to achieve harmony in the Christian life, but it's God's will that it would be accomplished in us so that others might see Jesus. Paul writes in Philippians 2.2, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one Mind. You see how central that is to the apostles' teaching. Unity. The next virtue is sympathy. Now, Peter has just talking about, he's talked about the sympathetic natures we are to have as husbands towards our wives. But that applies to everyone, really. We, we are to have feelings, and we're supposed to feel what other people's feel. We're supposed to be sensitive to people's needs. People who are sympathetic tend to not say things like, you know, I know exactly what you're going through right now. Because usually the person saying, oh, you you've been in my very specific situation that only applies to me. Oh, okay, (laughs) that's interesting. People who are sympathetic usually say, I can't even begin to imagine what you're going through right now, but I want to be there for you in it. True sympathy is often quiet. It gives up its time, and it's simply being present. If you think about Job's comforters, Job's comforters were very good starting out. They kept their mouths shut for days. And it was when they opened up their mouths to talk that they started getting into trouble. And so we can do that as well, can't we? We want to have sympathy for people, but often we want to fix problems rather than love people through them. Sympathy means learning to rejoice with those who rejoice. To weep with those who weep. That's Romans 12, 16. Paul says we are one body as believers. And he says if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. That's 1 Corinthians 12, 26. There is peace when everything is right in the body. And that's just physically speaking and spiritually speaking. When everything is working in the body, there's peace. Prayers are not hindered. Love is given. Joy is palpable. And as brothers and sisters, we are to approach each other's struggles, hurts, and cares. And we're supposed to say, I'm here. I'm here for you. I can't even even begin to imagine what you're going through, but I, I want to be there for you in this time. In Hebrews 4.15, we read this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. I love that so much. He's able to sympathize with our weakness. And the reasoning is because he was tempted as we are yet without sin. Glorious. 
It's so crucial for us to understand. That passage never says Jesus approves of our sin, but that he has sympathy for us when we experience the effects of sin in our lives. You see, Christ came to put an end to sin once and for all. And because he had sympathy and compassion upon sinners, that's why he came. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. He loves sinners. Now apply that sympathy, the sympathy of Christ, to the way we treat others. What about homeless people? Is there sympathy in your hearts for them? What about addicts? Addicts of all sorts. What about neighbors who are far from the Lord? Those we consider our own enemies. Family members who annoy us. Aunts and uncles and parents and cousins. Children who have struggled with sin for years. They can't seem to get out of it. Everyone here knows someone like that. Do we have sympathy for them? You see, Jesus knows our weakness. That's Good news. That's good news because the great physician knows exactly what's ailing you. He knows exactly where to pinpoint the illness. And he alone is the cure. And so as we wrestle with things, he's both strong and empathetic to our struggles. He doesn't merely sympathize with us. He defeats Satan and the powers of evil for us. And so when he comes to us, he alone is able to say, I know exactly what you're going through because I went through it and I beat it and I beat it. And because you are in me and I am in you and you have my mind, you have my spirit, you are covered in my robes of righteousness. That means I beat it for you as well. Christ on the cross finished it for us. And so we're not victims, we're victors in Christ. And we can take heart because he has overcome the world. Thirdly, we are to have brotherly love. We should not view each other as strangers or mere acquaintances. We see each other on Sunday, we shake hands and say, see you next Sunday. See you Wednesday. The blood that binds us together is, doesn't course through our veins. It's the blood of Christ, which now covers us. We've been adopted by God into one big family of believers. It's more than a general camaraderie. It's it's a knowledge of the fact that we've all been born again. And we are new people. We have an imperishable inheritance which we will share together for all eternity. The command for believers to love one another is so foundational to the Christian faith. Jesus says in the book of John, John 13, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Then he says, by this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love your neighbor is the second great commandment. It sums up the law. First Thessalonians 4.9, Paul says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Now that's a high standard. The standard is high for wives to submit to to their husbands as they do to the Lord. And it's set high for the husbands to love their wives as Christ loves the church. All Christian love stands 
as the highest possible form of love because it models God's love. This is why it's, oh, it's heartbreaking. It's grievous when the church fails to love one another, when Christians fight, when there's disunity in the body, when churches fall apart, when they split, when there's infighting between believers. It goes direct contrast, directly against what Christ has commanded us to do. And it's a poor example for a watching world that looks to rebuke us. And so we should try, we should fight for love, we should fight for unity in the church. Yesterday the deacons had a work day, we got together to clean up around the church, we got together to go tear down a a big old tree house in my parents' yard, and when Rick Young was selling this during the deacons meeting, he said, I don't know why we have so much fun together at these things, but we have fun together. And I love that because we had a blast yesterday. It's just fun. And the reason it's fun is because we are brothers. We're just coming together to love people. We're just coming together to serve the church. We, we have one mind. And there's a real joy with being together. The majority of my best memories in my life involve the church. It just involves the church. Doing things with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Those are some of my best memories in life. Hebrews 2, 11 through 12 tells us something so beautiful about the familial love that we share as believers. The author of Hebrews writes, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he, meaning Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. It's too, it's too wonderful. If you understand what that means, it's too wonderful. Christ is not ashamed of us. He's not ashamed to say, that's my sister. That's my brother. He wants to be seen with the likes of us in public. And he doesn't just slip in the back door, you know, hide out in the back pew. It says he goes to the middle of the congregation and he sings. And the good news is that when Christ is singing with us, the melody that reaches heaven, when all of us are praising God, it's the voice of Christ that comes to the Father's ears. And who here does not delight in the singing of their children? When we offer up our praises to God the Father, Christ's voice is mixed with our song. And it's Him that we harmonize with. What a gift. Oh, what a gift it is to be a member of this church. To be a member of the family of God. It breaks my heart when I hear people tear down the church or bash the church. And I say, oh, they, they're missing it. They haven't experienced the love and the unity and just the togetherness, the joy that comes from being a member of the bride. Let's not take it for granted. Fourth, we have a tender heart. We are called to have tender hearts and be compassionate. The literal translation of the Greek means we should, have, we should feel generous in our bellies. 
We're to feel for one another in the depths of our innards, in our guts. For some people, compassion comes naturally, doesn't it? I'm sure you've all known people where, you know, we would term them bleeding hearts. Any sob story that comes to them, they just, they, they hear it, they absorb it. Sometimes their, their grace is abused, sadly, because of it. Others have to work hard at compassion. They don't like cute babies. No, thank you. I don't want to hold that baby. <laughs> Elderly people make them feel uncomfortable. No, I don't want, to, don't want to talk to you right now. They tend to bottle up emotions. Sometimes all of us want to say, please quit being a baby and move on. I've worked with youth for many years and I try to be compassionate. I try to have sympathy. But when, I, you know, when they come up to you and they say, I've been dating this guy for a week and I love him and he broke up with me. I want to say, move up, get over it. You're not in love with that guy. Grow up. But I don't like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry to hear that. Please, please stop telling me these things. <laughs> Others, you know, it comes naturally to some. And you know what I'm talking about. Those times in your life, and you don't say it vocally, but you think, you know you brought this upon yourself. Oh, boo-hoo. Well, you know it's just their own fault. If they would toughen up, your problems are nothing compared to my problems. Would you fight through it? Would you grow up? You'll be stronger for it. Now, those things may be true, but they're not compassionate. But if we want to be like Christ, we must know how to be compassionate like he was. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. You see, God in Christ has shown us endless compassion. He's long-suffering. How many of us here are long-suffering? How many of us here are patient? Jesus, all throughout the Gospels, it says he has compassion upon the crowds. He sees the crowds and he says he has compassion upon them like, like sheep are without a shepherd. They need a shepherd. They just, they're ignorant, little sheep. And he looks upon the sick and he doesn't recoil from the lepers. He touches people. The father has compassion upon the prodigal son. He doesn't scold and say, you know, you brought this upon yourself. I told you so. He embraces the son. The good Samaritan enters into this, this man's life and becomes his neighbor through grace and mercy and love. And he says, I'll, I don't know what happened, but I'll take it upon myself to help. And we who have been our recipients of the Lord's great grace should be people marked with great compassion. Only God's love can do this. Only God's love poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit will ever compel us and motivate us to love like Christ loves. The final virtue is to have a humble mind. It's to be humble in spirit. Now it's easy to see that humility, which is listed last, corresponds to unity, which is listed first. Because to be humble is to put others first and yourself last. Humble people tend to foster a spirit of unity and harmony wherever they go. It's not just that we are to play the role of a lowly servant, but we are to do it with authenticity. 
We are to have humble attitudes, humble natures. We, we know that we are dependent upon God for all things. Do you understand that you are a beggar? Obviously, you understand you are in need of God's grace because you're here. You understand that you're a sinner. You understand that your salvation is by God, from God, through God, and for God alone. In Christ, we are loved, we are accepted, and we are redeemed. We are sinful and unworthy, yet he has given us grace upon grace upon grace, and he's left us awestruck because of it. Peter had to learn humility the hard way. If everyone deserts you, Jesus, he says, not me. I'm your guy. I alone, I, I will be the guy who sticks with you to the very end. And then Peter learns very quickly the hard lesson of denial. And then he learns from Christ as he takes up the water basin. And he sees him wash his disciples' feet. And he sees it in the Lord's face, beaten, bloodied, and bruised, spit upon and mocked. And he looks at Peter and he does not open his mouth with a curse. In Plato's Republic in Book 7, he talks about how the best leaders are often the ones who are so reluctant to be leaders. The ones who do not want to hold power. They're not eager for power. And we see this in somebody like George Washington back in 1788. He wanted to retire. He wanted to be done from public life. But America needed a leader. And so they come to old George and they say, how about it? And he says, I'll serve. I'll serve. But I'm not going to be a king. I refuse to be a king. I'm stepping down. I'll resign. And I'm going to set a precedent for future presidents. Give up the power. Give up power. Learn to do that. Now you compare that to dictators. Those in authority who refuse to pass the torch to younger generations because they're so prideful. If I give it up, this thing will fall apart. But humility is willingness to take a lower place. It's an acceptance of the fact that things will continue without you. God will grow the church without me, without you, without us. He will continue to grow the church. He will take care of your kids. God's in control. It's a laying down of pride and a a succumbing to the Lord's will and saying, yes, I will submit to God's will. Christ's example of lowliness calls us to a life of lowly service. Christian humility is mocked. It's been mocked throughout history as weakness in the same way that Christ was mocked. But ultimately, it will be honored by God on the day when he returns. The key verse, you guys probably all know where I'm going with this, Philippians 2, 5 through 7. Have this, what, mind among yourselves? See it again? It's always there which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So those are the five virtues. And you go, well, that sounds nice and easy. All of us know it's not nice and easy. It's a hard application. It's hard because we are so sinful, because human, natural, sinful human inclination is to push back against those things. And we could say, Peter, why are you commanding us to do stuff that we fail at doing? You know we're not good at this, Peter. And Peter would reply, you see, if you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, 
If you're children of God through adoption, if you're holy, called, set apart, as I've said, if Jesus is your Lord, if God's inheritance is your hope, then the seed of those virtues are already planted in your heart, whether you realize it or not. And through the watering of the word, the enduring word of God, the imperishable seed of God, which is planted in us, the Holy Spirit, by his grace, will grant us growth. And those seeds will root and flourish and produce fruit. Verse 9 helps us see how these virtues play out. They will, he says it will play out in a life that responds to God's grace. And namely, by not repaying evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Isn't it, isn't it interesting how many people go, I wish I just knew God's calling for my life. And Peter's told us twice now. In 2.21 and 3.9. It's to endure unjust suffering as Christ did. To be like Christ. And then to bless those who do evil and revile you as Christ did. What's your calling in life as a believer? Be like Christ. I know it's a novel idea. It's crazy. That little Christ, little Christians, would be like their master. We're called to live this way. When Christians are cursed, we bless. That's how we get even. Ha ha. We got him. We trust in God's justice over our own justice, not only in the world, but in the church as well. We're not blessing evil doing, but we're asking God to bless them by turning them from their evil doing. And you could read that as just a general word of kindness, or you could read it as God's word of blessing to us, which is the gospel. And so Jesus is commanding us not only to love our enemies, to pray for them, but to give them the gospel. To bless them by reflecting Jesus to them in the way we speak and act and love. In the book of Acts, Acts 7.60, we see this played out in real time. Stephen is a man filled with the Holy Spirit and he's being pelted to death with stones. It's almost, it's too gruesome to imagine. This powerful man, his face shone like an angel. He's glorious. And wicked men are are just hitting him with stones. And in the midst of it, he looks up to heaven and he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. That's incredible. I mean, can you even begin to imagine the effect that had on those people? Who was in the crowd? There was a young Pharisee, a real upstart, a guy named Saul, who oversaw the whole thing. Stephen's blessing fell upon Saul. Christ used the blessing of Stephen to bless Saul by turning him. And through him, how many of us have been blessed? Can you imagine? (laughs) Can you imagine when Paul showed up to paradise and Stephen met him? Can you imagine the embrace? What a testament to God's grace and mercy. It's earth-shaking love. It's earth-shaking forgiveness. It's forgiveness and love that changes history. 
in our world today, how much hatred is there? Israelis and Palestinians and Russia and Ukraine and Shiites and Sunnis and so forth and so on. What, what will end it? What will end the skirmishes? Who even starts them? Why do they start them? What's the point? Is it a temporary feeling of, of superiority, of being right, of getting even, of, of vengeance? The feel of, of winning? or What is it? And what can put a stop to the bloodshed? It's Christ. It's Christ. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the only thing that will make Hamas stop. It's the only thing that will make Israel and the Palestinians and, and peace pour out like, like rushing rivers. It has to be Christ. And beloved, we have them. We have it. We have the gospel. And when we fail to love our enemies with it, when we fail to love each other with it, oh, it's, it's awful, isn't it? Peter knows full and well what the human heart is capable of. He picked up the sword and he lopped off ears. But what turned Peter and Saul from men of war into men of peace? It was Christ. It was the power of the Spirit working within them. It was the gospel of grace being poured out into their hearts. And they heard it and they realized it and they said, I'm done. Why are we fighting? Why are we doing this? Why am I killing Christians? It's only the gospel of grace that would ever cause two enemies to hug and embrace as brothers. You may not know this story, but the, one of the Japanese pilots who flew over Pearl Harbor became a Christian later on in life. And it was through reading a Christian book. It was a missionary that gave him a book. And the power of the gospel changed him and transformed him forever. Not by, not by work, not by might, by grace. And God's redeemed us, hasn't he? Rather than destroying us for messing up his world, we, we spat on his son and he responds with blessing. And the evidence that you've been born again in your life is that this becomes a foretaste of the promised inheritance. It is a joy in your heart to live like Christ. Peter's quoting from Psalm 34. He alluded to it before, back in 2-3, and he says, Whoever desires to love life, see good days. Let him keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil, do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. And David, if you read it in the context, he's, he writes this psalm as a praise to the Lord. Then he moves from blessing God to the fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom, and how the fear of the Lord should change us. David's God-fearing counsel fits Peter's interests because he's trying to disciple people in difficult times who are going to be persecuted. Persecution causes trouble, but there are ways to minimize that trouble, Peter says. If you love life, you want to see good days, seek out peace and the welfare of the city in which you have been called. When P what Peter calls good days is what we would call happiness. To achieve happiness, to achieve good days, we must control our tongues. 
We must turn from evil and do good. We engage the world, and by God's grace, we try to leave it a little better than we found it. So we make art, we make beauty, we preach truth, we bless in the midst of persecution. And this concept is so important to Peter, he mentions doing good in the face of suffering three times. 2.20, 3.17, and coming up in 4.19. He says we will enjoy good in our own lives by doing good in the lives of others. And we do it mindful of God, what he's done for us. It might not be possible to obtain peace. Peacemaking requires two parties united. Maybe you're just the one who wants peace. That's okay. We strive for it. We pursue it. This would be a good life. Now, as we close, imagine a good day in a commercial. What does Hollywood think is a good day? Guy on a boat, maybe? Beer in his hand? Kids are playing. Wife is relaxing. Sun's shining. Dog is acting like a dog should act, you know? It's a good day for a commercial. But a good day in the life of the believers in Acts, to whom Peter's writing to, sees Paul and Silas whipped and beaten, chained in a jail cell, and they're singing psalms of praise. And I wonder if they didn't sing Psalm 34. Now, why do I say that? Because Silas, we know from the end of Peter, is sitting next to Peter, writing this with him. (laughs) And Silas would have said, you know what? (laughs) I remember a, a moment with Paul and I, and we were singing this song. And both Peter and Silas would have certainly remembered the words of Jesus in Mark 8, 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. That's a good life. That's a good life. And it's a life lived in response to God's grace. These graces belong to us by faith in Jesus. If you don't have faith in Jesus today, then the end of that, our passage should be a sober warning to you. It says, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And so if you do not know Christ, if you do not know what it means to have unity with the brothers and the sisters, then today, let that be the day you do. But if you do know Jesus, it says his ears are attentive to you. He hears your prayers. He hears your cries for help. And he alone will save us. Let's pray.